0: Welcome back to Tamart Radio on KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California. This is your host, Rohan Bakshi. The sport known as soccer in the United States is known as football in England, but the word soccer is actually British in origin. A game similar to soccer dates back to ancient China. The sport in its current form started in 1863 when a new organization, Football Association was created in England and set its rules. The game was called Association Football to distinguish it from Rugby Football, where players could carry the ball and run with it. Students at Oxford gave the sport the nickname Rugger for Rugby Football and a Soccer for Association Football, as Soccer was further shortened to Soccer and the term spread. Eventually, rugby football ended up being called rugby, and association football was called just football. Across the pond in the United States in the late 19th century, a new sport that was a mix of rugby and association football rose steeply in popularity. It was known as gridiron football, now known in the US simply as football. To distinguish them, the US Football Association changed its name to the US Soccer Football Association. And finally, the U.S. Soccer Association. Other countries that have their own unique form of football use the term soccer as well. Ireland has Gaelic football, Australia has Australian rules football, and they both have a rich history of soccer, which is what this episode of Time Out Radio is all about. Our guest on today's episode is James Vernon from UC Berkeley, who teaches a class there on the history of soccer. We talk about how the game was shaped by colonialism and capitalism, and why soccer fan culture in some parts of the world is so intense. Then we explore our place of the week, Uruguay, where the first FIFA World Cup was held in 1930. Up next is Reckless Child by Milky Chance.
1: You make me feel like you Just because of you I so damn high. I didn't even know how to get back down Only if you pull me back to the ground Thank you, remedy, remedy, remedy for my Trauma when you love her too bad You make me feel like you reckless reckless Just because of you I get so
0: Welcome back to Time Out Radio on KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, California. This is your host, Rohan Bakshi. Our guest on today's episode is Professor James Vernon from UC Berkeley's Department of History. His work focuses on the cultural, social, political, and economic history of Britain and its imperial world. And he also teaches a popular class at Berkeley on the history of soccer. So, Professor Vernon... Welcome to Time Out Radio. First off, you are a British historian and got your PhD at the University of Manchester. Now as a professor at UC Berkeley, you teach global and British history with topics ranging from the history of hunger to the history of soccer. So what exactly got you interested in history?
2: First off, Rowan, thanks so much for the invitation to come talk to you on I love talking about the history of soccer. So I'm looking forward to this very much. And you go back to the time when I did my PhD at the University of Manchester. I was an undergrad there too. And my very first night in Manchester was a Saturday night. And there'd just been the Manchester derby between United and Man City. And both of those teams weren't very good back in those days. We're talking the early 1980s. And in those days, no one wore... The strip or the shirt of the club, and I just remember going out to a pub because in England you can go out drinking when you're 18, 19 years old, and someone coming up to me and saying, "Are you a blue or are you a red?" and not knowing which way to answer because either way it was a 50% chance I was going to get hit, so I just ran out of the pub back to my dorm. (laughs) It's a, Mm -hmm. a, uh, a happy memory. So the question was, why did I get interested in history? I got interested in history around that time because the world in the early 80s was a quite a scary place to be, a little like the world is now. And I was sort of un- wanted to understand how we got here, how we got into this mess in the first place. And for me, studying history is a good reminder that the world hasn't always been like it is now, that change happens. And if you study how that happens, you might be able to make change happen again.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what got you interested specifically in the history of soccer, or you know, football as it's known in England? Yeah, well,
2: we can stick to soccer. That's okay. I've been here long <laughs> enough that I speak the language. Well, I mean, I grew up as a fan. I've been supporting my team for over fifty years, so I've always been um, obsessed with the game. But really, what got me interested in the history of soccer was two things. First. It's just a great way to understand how imperialism and capitalism made the world we still live in. But also, I was at the time that I started thinking about developing the class, my youngest kid was playing a lot of soccer. And I remember having a lot of conversations with people on the side of his games, mainly about the offside rule. Um, And it made me think, oh, okay, this is something that I actually know a little bit about that people want to learn about. So I started teaching it then.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what soccer team were you a fan of as a child? And did this change over the years?
2: Uh, It's never changed. Um, I belong to the generation who supported their local team. And my local team was a team that 12 months ago, no one had heard of. And you may still not have heard of them, but they're in the news a lot more at the moment. It's a team called Ipswich Town. And they're currently doing very well in the championship, which is the league below the English Premier League. Um, So we're hoping to get promoted this year. We used to be a Premier League team, but the last time we were in the Premier League was when I moved to California in 2000. But happily for me, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, Ipswich was one of the best teams in Europe. We won not the competition that became the Champions League, but the competition that's now uh, more like the Europa Cup. And we won an FA Cup and we were always in the top four teams in the first division in England. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And so I've been, you know, personally playing soccer since uh, I think I was around 10 and now play goalie for, uh, Club team in my city, Davis. So uh, you know, I've been personally a big fan of the beautiful game for many years. So growing up, did you play soccer uh yourself? And so, you know, what position?
2: Yeah, I'm always fascinated by goalkeepers. <laughs> um, it takes a very special person to be a goalkeeper. If you think about the game, and this is, I guess, less true um at the moment because goalkeepers have become so much part of the attacking strategy of teams. The goalkeeper is a position where you are very exposed individually in a way that no other position is. So it takes, I think, someone of enormous courage to play in that position. You you basically only ever get blamed for things. No one ever really, you know, lauds you for a brilliant save that you make or a fabulous pass in the way that they do, you know, midfielder or attacker. So uh, all power to you for for being a goal. <laughs> Um, I grew up playing in a position that was then known as left forward or left wing I'm right footed but I was reasonably good with my left foot so I was basically the only person at my school who could really use my left foot at all so that's why they put me out on that side Mm -hmm. and I and then as I got older I started falling a little bit further back on the pitch Um, And I I stopped playing about five, 10 years ago. um, But I was a holding midfield player in my final years.
0: Yeah. And so you teach a class at Berkeley called Soccer, a Global History. So why is it important for people to learn about the history of soccer?
2: I think it's really important for your generation to learn about the history of soccer, because I think most people assume that the game that they've grown up playing and watching is how the game has always been. And so one of the first things I like to try and show people in that class is how dramatically the game has changed over time. And there are all sorts of crazy rules and crazy developments that people are really often quite surprised and shocked to discover. And that is just a great example for me of the work that historians do in trying to teach people how the world changes over time and how we make sense of those changes. Mm
0: -hmm. And, you know, soccer is clearly the most popular sport in the world with more than 275 million players and three and a half billion fans. So, you know, that's practically like half the world. So what were some of the main reasons soccer got so massively popular around the world?
2: There are two reasons for that. The first, I would say, when the game first becomes a global game in the 1920s and the 1930s. The game was really made a global game by imperialism and capitalism. European empires used the game to try and improve their chances of colonizing other countries and teaching the people that they ruled over how to follow the rules of a game that they had invented and imported into that country. So that, I think, was one of the first really important developments. And, of course, the game was also used to try and make better workers, fitter, more productive workers in Europe and elsewhere in the world. So, you know, back a century ago, I would say those were the most important elements. But in your lifetime and just before your lifetime, the way that the game has become as truly spectacularly popular as it is now is really the consequence of television coverage and sports marketing packages they were first developed by fifa in repackaging the world cup in the 1970s and the 1980s and then effectively the same television rights deals and sports marketing packages that fifa used for the world cup then got picked up and used by The English Premier League in the early 90s, the European Champions League then, and now basically every regional competition, including, for instance, at the moment, the AFCON and the Asian Cup follow that same model. So television has had a massive impact on the capacity of people to follow the game and to support teams in all parts of the world.
0: Yeah. In your class, your students learn how the game was shaped by, you know, very social and economic forces such as colonialism and capitalism. Tell us about some of the things your students learn about that surprises them.
2: I actually think that the thing that surprises my students the most, I mean, there, there are lots of different elements. I've already alluded to some of the crazy rules that used to exist in the game. But the thing I think that surprises them most is that the women's game has really been around since the start of the game and was hugely popular in the 1910s and the 1920s. So popular that the football authorities in various countries banned it because they thought it was going to subsume the men's game. And I think, you know, so many of us assume that the women's game is of really recent origin. Um, but that's just not the case. It's been around for a long time, and uh, it's been an important part of the history of the game. Mm-hmm.
0: And I read that the first college soccer game was played between Rutgers and Princeton University in 1872, and Rutgers won that game six to four. But the game didn't actually get popular in the United States until you know years later. So, how did soccer come to North America? And what led to its popularity eventually catching on in this part of the world?
2: There are two answers to that. The first is that in elite universities like Rutgers and Princeton, uh, the game was imported to try and develop what were then known as the forms of muscular Christian men that those universities were meant to produce. And athletics was seen to be an important part of the sort of moral education of undergraduate students. It's actually one of the reasons why we still have athletic programs in universities that aren't hugely commercially successful. But the other reason, because that quickly died out and American universities turned to sports that were considered to be more appropriately American. And that's really the answer to why soccer didn't become popular in the US until the late 20th century. It was present in the U.S. from the 1870s, 1880s, but it was a game played by immigrants. It was a game played by working men who came uh, mainly from Northern Europe, but sometimes also from uh, Latin America. And it really took off in the Northeast and around the Great Lakes from the 1890s through to the 1920s and the 1930s. But it was always associated with with other cultures, and it wasn't considered appropriately American. So when the first leagues were established, the first professional leagues were established in the US in the 1960s and the 1970s, and even with the MLS in the 80s and 90s, they introduced loads of strange rules to try and make the game seem more American. I mean, most famously, the penalty shootout with the one-on-one Um, where the player was allowed to run up from the halfway line to score against the goalkeeper or, you know, um, equally infamously that you weren't allowed to tie a game um, because that was considered to be too boring.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And xenophobia and racism in soccer was especially prevalent in the 1970s and eighties with coaches and audience members, you know, subjecting non-white players to negativity and abuse. So, How did racism in soccer reflect wider social issues in Europe in those times?
2: Well, and not just in Europe. I mean, I've already said that one of the ways that the game became a global game was by imperialism. And the game was literally used to try, as at places like Princeton and Rutgers in that first college game, was designed to produce a certain type of white athletic man. So the game has always been tied up to the production of white men and the ability of those white men to show that they are physically superior to um, men of other ethnicities and races. So racism is really hardwired into the history of the game. It became much more prevalent in Europe in the 1970s because European empires basically... Um, were decolonized in the 1950s and the 1960s. And in that process, lots of former colonial subjects of color moved to to Europe, to the countries that had colonized their country, and white working-class Europeans began to express their hostility to immigration to the players of color that were beginning to emerge in Europe. So that's the you know, that, I mean, that, that's a very complicated and important story, but that would be my quick answer to it.
0: Mm-hmm. And soccer's also brought together people all over the world through, you know, their shared passion for the game. But it is also a sport that's known for on-field brawls, spectator yeah. hooliganism, and even, you know, violence and riots. Uh, yes. So, you know, soccer fan culture in some parts of the world can be pretty intense. Yeah. Why do you think that is?
2: I think that soccer is basically a form of war by other means. Um, and if you think about it, the game is a vehicle for a particular set of local identities or ethnic or racial identities or religious identities and national identities. And clubs and national teams become vehicles for the expression of those identities and their conflicts with people that identify in different types of ways. So I think that's why the game is often at the heart of various forms of social violence.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the first FIFA World Men's Cup was in Uruguay in 1930. And then the first FIFA Women's World Cup was held more than six decades later in 1991 in China. So thinking historically, what changes in our world kind of influenced the eventual rise and spread of women's soccer?
2: Yeah, I mean, actually, you're right that that was the first World Cup for the Women's World Cup in China. Interestingly, the reason why it was in China was because the Chinese state used the game to try and promote um, women's sport in that country, particularly in the run-up to the Olympics. So you had the super interesting phenomena of FIFA, which was an organization that was really trying to develop the capitalist wealth of the game, cooperating with communist China, just as communist China was beginning to embrace market uh, reforms to its own economy. The women's game really has become popular once it's been seen as a vehicle for generating commercial wealth. And that's why FIFA finally embraced holding a Women's World Cup. There have been various international competitions that various entrepreneurs had organized in the 1970s. And FIFA didn't want to lose out on the possibility of someone else making money from the women's game. And you can see that at least this is not so true in Latin America, where the women's game is still struggling to be commercially viable. But you can definitely see this in Europe, and particularly in England, that now all the big clubs... Have their own women's teams because they see it as another way of selling the brand of the club and attracting spectators to other games for me it's one of the great sadnesses of the american game the women's game has different clubs to the men's game because it seems like it's a real loss of an opportunity to embed um, the women's and the men's game together and a great example of that is my local team in oakland which has a men's and a women's team. And, you know, they they play games in the same places. And it's very much a club with both a men's and a women's team, which I just think is awesome and the way that we've got to go in the future.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Vernon, for joining me on Time Out Radio today.
2: My pleasure, Ryan. Thanks, thanks so much for the invite.
0: Yeah, of course. That's Professor James Vernon from UC Berkeley's Department of History. And that was Lost in Paradise by Forrester, featuring Boo Sica. In today's travel segment we visit Uruguay, home to 3.5 million people. Its capital is Montevideo, its official language is Spanish, and currency is Peso. It's South America's second smallest country, slightly bigger than Suriname, and is bordered by Brazil and Argentina. The country's name comes from the Uruguay River, which means the River of the Painted Birds. The original inhabitants hunted, gathered, and fished. Uruguay was colonized by the Portuguese in 1630 and then the Spanish in 1726, and the indigenous population was largely erased. There was a large immigration of people from Italy there in the 1800s and 1900s. Uruguay's main industry is agriculture, mainly livestock production. Almost 100% of the country's electricity is generated through renewable resources. Soccer is Uruguay's most popular sport. It hosted the first FIFA World Cup in 1930 and won it. If you go see their team play, you will hear an abbreviated version of their national anthem. The complete version is about 5 minutes long, which makes it the longest national anthem in the world. If you need a meal after watching all that soccer, the 29th day of each month is officially called gnocchi day. This was the day before payday and if people ran low on money, they cooked this relatively cheap and filling potato based pasta. If you're especially hungry, eat a chivito, Uruguay's national dish. It is a sandwich of beef, steak, mozzarella, ham, bacon, eggs, tomatoes, mayonnaise, and olives with a side of fries. Then if all this eating makes you sleepy, have a cup of mate, an indigenous tea that contains caffeine and is made from the leaves of the yerba mate plant. So that wraps up our journey to our place of the week, the country of Uruguay. Alright, let's call a timeout for Tamau Time Radio. This was your host, Rohan Bakshi. You're listening to Cater 95.7 FM, where the grassroots grow. Have a great day, everyone.